Today, we're lucky to be joined by Sam Walker, the author of the book, The Captain's Class, a book that I absolutely loved. Thanks for joining us, Sam. We're honored to speak with you. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. So the book sets out to define who the greatest teams in sports history are and what common theme they all shared. And the common theme you found was that the captain of these elite teams had some very similar sort of characteristics. And, and you mentioned in the book that you were surprised to find that this was the case. I'm curious going in, what did you expect to find as the most common ingredient in uh, some of these teams? Well, you know, I'd have to start with talent. You know, I just figured that, you know, top to bottom, maybe either talent in the aggregate and that they just had like better overall talent or else they had superstars. They had incomparable players who carried them. And probably even above that, I thought it would be coaching. I mean, I really thought that, that the influence that a coach has, the vision they have, um, I figured the top teams that I found when I did the study would all have some of the more familiar lead coaches. And I thought there'd be a much closer correlation there. And if not that, you know, I thought probably strategy, tactics. You know, a lot of teams that have been really innovative have had incredible runs for a long period of time. And I figured some of them would pop up there. And if it wasn't that, I figured, you know, money. I figured it was just resources. You know, they mm -hmm. came from rich countries or, or they were rich professional teams. So I didn't really know what I was going to find. But, you know, the answer just hit me right away. I mean, it was like a slap your forehead obvious thing because these teams had none of those things in common. I mean, it was really amazing. There were, you know, there were some really talented teams, but some of them really didn't have great ability. And in fact, you know, a few of these teams, like the, the New York Yankees team that I looked at, I mean, that team was not great top to bottom in terms of its talent. In fact, their pitching was terrible. I mean, it was one, they were one of the, like, the 10 worst pitching teams in the history of the Yankees, and yet they won four World Series titles. So over and over again, I saw the talent wasn't it. And the coaching thing really blew me away. I mean, I just I had no idea that that wouldn't be a factor. But all of these teams, all 16 of them, I mean, the majority of those coaches on the 16 teams were brand new or had little or almost no experience before they started or had a bad track record before they started um, these great runs. And you know, afterwards, you know, some of them did well afterwards, but they never kind of approached the level they, they were at before. So um, it didn't seem to be coaching. They also had different styles. They were different people. You know, they had different um, uh, different ways of leading the team. So there was no pattern at all there. And the same thing with strategy, the same thing with money. In fact, you know, a lot of these teams had no money. I mean, they came from Cuba, Hungary. You know, they were these these poor countries or else – you know, there were teams like the San Antonio Spurs who were kind of in the middle of the pack in the NBA in terms of their financial resources. So, you know, I never imagined I would write a book about leadership. I mean, I just didn't think it was where I was heading I mean, I, at all. But what I found was every single one of these teams, I mean, I, I looked at it and it's eerie. It's uncanny. They're, the winning streak, these long dominant streaks of success, they begin and end in this, with one thing. And that's the, the presence of one player. And that player was always the captain of the team or the leader of the team. So it was really obvious. In fact, it was so obvious that I didn't believe it. I thought it can't be this easy. It can't be this simple, right? So I went back and, and, and did all this research to confirm that, that it wasn't the other things. And the more I dug, it just kind of reinforced the idea that, that the um, – and, and, and let me be totally clear about this. I'm not talking about – uh, all great teams. I'm not talking about you can win a championship. You can have an incredible season or two, you know, you can win without one of these characters. But what I studied was lasting success, four seasons or more of complete dominance. And so this is really about building a team that, with a culture that can sustain itself. And so my conclusion from the book is the only way that you can have, I mean, you need a lot of things. You need talent, you need coaching, you need all those things. But the only thing you must have is a captain, a strong captain who fits these criteria. Yeah, and you kind of go into some misconceptions we have on what makes a good leader. So I guess the uh, next question is, um, what do you think people commonly think of as characteristics that make up a good leader? And then how do we spot like the true leaders in a group? Well, you know, that I had all those, I had a very strong prejudices. And again, I don't even know where I got them from. You know, I realized when I was writing the book that I'd never really thought about it. If I was in a, in a team setting and, and I was facing the toughest fight of my life, 
you know, who would you choose to lead and why? And, you know, I realized I had these preconceptions and the first one was talent. I just thought, you know, the, the person leading the team should be, if not the best person in terms of talent on the team up there. Right. I mean, they had to be someone who had great qualities that were obvious. And then, you know, I thought charisma was a big part of this It's someone who has just that way about them, that, that sort of magnetic thing that's visible to people that you can kind of see that you can uh, pick out of a crowd, you know, that kind of special um, charisma and communication. I, I thought, you know, they would, they would be great at big speeches. They would be kind of fiery motivators who, you know, were very good in, in kind of stepping into the spotlight and speaking for the team. And, um, you know, the loudest voice in the room, the person who takes a shot with a game on the line. And I had other weird prejudices I didn't really even realize I had. I mean, some of them were, um, I thought that these people would be really diplomatic in a group setting. And I thought that they would be the kind of people who would um, diffuse conflicts inside a team and would always be able to work through problems. And I also thought that they would be really, they would have high integrity. I mean, in terms of the rules of sports, that they would, they would never violate the rules. They would be, you know, good role models, someone who, um, you know, plays the game the right way. Right. And, so I walked into it with that. But when I started looking at these captains, it was very confusing because, you know, I, I, half of them, I didn't never even heard of them. I'd heard of the teams, but I didn't know who the captain was. They weren't great players. A lot of them were, they hated attention. I mean, really stayed out of the spotlight, didn't want anything to do with it. And, you know, they, they also were really hard to manage and they were, um, they would push back. They would fight their coaches. They would fight about anything they thought was getting in the way of the team winning. And, they also pushed the rules to the absolute edges, to the extremes, and sometimes beyond them. So they weren't paragons of great sportsmanship either. So I realized absolutely none of my preconceptions about leadership actually applied to the leaders of the most successful, enduring teams in sports. Yeah, well, I think a lot of us have those same biases. And you know, one of the one of the people you wrote about a lot was uh, Bill Russell, and he was not very diplomatic and. Uh, one of the stories that really stuck out to me was how, uh, I think it was 1975, he decided not to participate in the Hall of Fame ceremony yeah. because he believed his career should be remembered as a symbol of, of team play. Um, so why is something like this so important for, for an elite leader or captain? Well, I think the problem is that, you know, we're, we're here in the U.S., right? And, and we're the country that invented Hollywood. And, and we invented the Hall of Fame, you know, which is kind of a funny concept you think about it for team sports i mean the idea is you take someone out of the team collective and you say this person is special and make a bronze plaque out of them you know and it doesn't really recognize the, uh, the fact that a team is a, is a collective effort so we live in this place and i think you know people in my generation i mean i grew up with you know when michael jordan became this sensation and people were lining up to buy shoes i mean there's this idea that somehow um leadership strength uh, importance is tied up in um, in celebrity and is tied up in how individually powerful a person is. And this is a mistake we make. I think we think that you know leaders need to be obvious. We think that they need to have obvious qualities that you can see. And I think we we settle on those kinds of people. But what I found in my research was that um, you know there's a lot of, of similar research in sociology uh, and psychology that shows that. Um, people who serve the team, you know, are more effective leaders. In fact, if you lower yourself in relation to the group and you're willing to do the grunt work, the, you're willing to toil behind the scenes and, and take on the uh, ugly jobs, this has a buoying effect on everyone else. It allows everybody else to raise their performance and to feel more invested in the outcome. So I saw that over and over again. And these leaders, the thing is they weren't front and center. They were mostly support players. They played it kind of in the shadows and did grunt work. They were water carriers is like the best description I could think of for them. Um, and a lot of them, you know, did that kind of thing. But what that does is um, it creates this it creates this weird kind of leadership that we don't see, which is, you know, someone in the back who's toiling away, making sure that all the day to day business of leadership and leading the team is getting done that kind of person kind of puts a wind at everybody's back. And, you know, I think if you want to sustain excellence over a long period of time, you have to have someone like that who's just thinking about nothing but the team, not thinking about themselves ever. 
I mean, ever and under any circumstances, will will absolutely play through anything uh, in order to support the team, and who is um, com- so committed in that role that they're almost invisible. And that was the thing that was so shocking to me. It was talking to a lot of teammates of these captains. I kept hearing over and over again, you know, they were surprised by my conclusions in a way. I mean, they didn't disagree with them, but they thought, you know, I didn't ever felt like I was being led. And that's that's a really important lesson, I think, for um, mm-hmm. for leaders and for coaches. I mean, you know, a great leader doesn't feel like they're leading you. You know, it's not standing up and telling you what to do and, you know, do, it's not about grand gestures. It's about everything they do and every minute um, focused on making the team better. And, and this gives everybody a little bit of confidence and takes some worries off their plates. And, and it just feels right. And that's the thing about these teams. People are like, everyone thinks that, you know, being in a great team is this incredibly memorable thing that you'll never forget. And there was something really electric about it. But that's true to some extent, but most of these people who were on these teams said it just felt natural. It just felt normal. They didn't feel weird or different. It just felt like everything was functioning the way it should. When you're on a bad team, that's when it's dramatic because the dysfunction you know, gets into everything and everything becomes complicated and difficult when it should be easy. But you know, I think having a leader like that who is, behind, who is not front and center but is back leading from the back i think that creates that sense of calm and that order and and purpose and helps everybody focus so it made me think a little bit sam i, I really like what you're saying and but i picture a lot of like i don't know for example like hockey they put the big c on the chest you know so everyone knows who the captain is and i think there's other sports that do that same thing so so i mean is that something we should not be doing like you know showing who the captain is no, I think you need to designate a captain. I mean, this is one of the things I, I've been telling coaches. It's, uh, I think there's a pretty, from what I've seen, there's really very few um, examples that have ever deviated from this. You need a captain. You need to designate someone who um, is in charge uh, on the field, who is your surrogate as a coach on the field. Um, and you know what? You need to pick that person yourself because um, – you know, you, you don't want to leave it to a team election. And there have been some cases where that's worked. And Barcelona is a great one. Carlos Puyol, you know, was elected by his teammates by tradition. Um, he's the only one I could find in that group, um, except for there's another one, a Soviet hockey captain, oddly. But uh, it's pretty rare. And, and But the thing is, this is what coaches, I think, my, my biggest takeaway for coaches from doing all this research um, the most important decision that you make is probably one that you don't give enough consideration to. And that is who you choose to be the captain and why. But the most important thing you have to do when picking a captain is it has to be your partner. I mean, that's what I saw over and over again on these great teams was the relationship between the coach and the captain was not a hierarchical thing. It was a partnership. You know, and there was a give and take. There was some contentiousness there. They disagreed. Some of them were like old married couples. I mean, Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan, for example, they're a great example of this. I mean, they were, you know, they they fought, they quarreled, they loved each other, but they were equal partners. And, you know, what Alex Ferguson said about this, um, the great uh, English soccer coach, I mean, he said, you know, all of my responsibility, everything that I did off the field, everything that I did to make the team better, all the details that I paid attention to, all of that ended the minute that the, that the match began. And from then that point on, it was up to the captain of the team to execute the game plan on the field. He saw it as distinct and separate things. And if you ever watched Ferguson when he was managing, I mean, he would sit in the dugout you know, with his arms folded over his chest, not saying anything. He didn't jump up and down like a lot of these managers do in European soccer. He would sit there. You know, he wasn't trying to direct the play because he felt that, I think, he great coaches understand that you have to have a surrogate leader on the field, but it's someone who's a partner. You have to give them some autonomy and independence so that they can act on their own. So, yeah, I think you need to see. It looks a little showy. It may not fit their personality, but I think the kinds of people who do this job best they're not doing it for the C. They're not doing it for the prestige it conveys. They don't care if there's a C on the chest or not. They All they care about is they know that they want to do the job for the team, and they know that they're committed to the goals of the team and that they're able to work with the coach and work with the other players to achieve them. And um, So it may seem like you're making a big show, but it's very important 
very important to single somebody out and to be very clear to the players and to yourself who that field manager is. Can you give us an example of, uh, I guess, one of these captains, how they showed that invisible leadership or that natural feel where the players, the teammates didn't really feel like they're being pushed or led or like commanded by them, but they, you know, showed that kind of natural leadership? Yeah, no, my favorite example of all these, I think, is uh, Carla Overbeck. And, you know, most people, when I say Carla Overbeck, are like, who? <laughs> you know? Yeah. She was, um, so you remember this 1999 U.S. women's soccer team that won the World Cup. I mean, incredible team, you know, and, and an amazingly photogenic kind of celebrity-packed team with Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Brandi Chastain, unforgettable athletes. So the captain of that team the real heartbeat was Carla Overbeck. And the reason you don't know who she is is because she did not want you to know who she was. She had no interest in any of the accolades that that, that team got. You know, the minute she got the ball, she knew that she wasn't the best athlete on the team. She was an average athlete. She had incredible stamina, but she was an average athlete. She would lay it off immediately to one of her teammates who were far more uh, athletically superior to her. She never tried to score. She never tried to make long runs into the, into the scoring end. She was a central defender. She played her position. She cleaned up mistakes. She did the grunt work on the field. But it wasn't just on the field. Off the field, she was remarkable. I mean, really amazing person because she – so after they won the World Cup, they all flew to Manhattan. And, and they had this huge rally in midtown Manhattan. They did Letterman. They did all the shows – they all the morning shows. They were the toast of the town, and uh, there was only one member of the team who wasn't there, and it was Carla Overbeck. And I asked her why she didn't go, and she said, "I just wanted to go home. Our job was done. We won. I wanted to see my family." So she flew home, and she I asked her what she was doing that day. She said, three loads of laundry." You know, she wanted nothing to do with any of that. And this is the greatest Carla Overbeck story, and it's and it's a true story. And she is mortified when when uh, I talk about it. But she uh, was very famous for this. So they would go on these long flights, and they'd fly to Norway or something, and you know they'd make them fly in coach, you know, with some awful thing, and they would be worn out, and they would get off the bus, and and they would all stagger into the hotel rooms, and then there'd be a knock on the door, and they'd open the door, and it was Carla Overbeck who was carrying everybody's bags to their rooms for them. I mean, she was the captain of the team during this. And, you know, this was – I asked Anson Durant, who was one of her coaches in North Carolina and in the Olympic team early on, about this. And he said, you know, she did that for a reason. She did that because she knew that it gave her this currency, that her teammates understood that she was about the team and she was a selfless person who only wanted the team to win. So that on the field – when one of her teammates was dogging it or needed a pickup or you needed or did something great and needed congratulations, she would be the first person over there to do that. And even if she was riding you hard, all of her teammates said you knew it was coming from a genuine place because you knew that Carla was not about Carla. She was about the team. And it's that kind of behind-the-scenes, functional, credit-deflecting posture that not only makes everybody feel um, safe, it allows for – honest communication and it allows the stars to be the stars not have to worry about the functions of, of managing and leading a team they can just worry on their game and doing the great things they do and you know i saw that over and over again that's the dynamic that works let the superstars be the superstars the superstars should not be the people trying to lead the team too they should be left alone to do what they do and i think when they have someone like that behind them i think it raises their performance I love that uh, Overbeck study, and I think that's one of the things that makes. Sorry, story. One of the things that makes the book so great is uh, the mix of these, you know, these interesting stories combined with with some research. And and one of the the research studies I found really interesting was the Ohio State shouting study. Right. Um, I thought that was really eye opening, and I think it could really make an impact for for teams and coaches. Uh, can you take us through that and explain, you know, how we can counteract it? Yeah, so this is um, something that I, I found. I was trying to figure out why these captains, um, one, of the, one of their common characteristics was this relentlessness, this sort of doggedness on the field. And it didn't matter if they were up by um, 10 goals or, you know, or down by 10 goals. They played at the same level always. They really just had one speed. And my favorite example is this Carlos Puyol from Barcelona who – 
you know, his teammates would laugh because they'd be beating some team 10 to nothing. And he'd be running around like it's the Champions League final, like trying to get everybody to play harder. And, you know, it was that kind of relentlessness I saw over and over. And, you know, they would play through the most unimaginable injuries. I mean, one of these, this Russian hockey captain had a heart attack in the middle of the world championships and, you know, had to lie down on the bench during a shift, but kept playing. I mean, it was that kind of commitment that I thought was really bizarre. And I didn't know how that would actually help a team. Cause I know that, you know, certainly it helps them do their part, but I wondered how could this help a team collectively? So I, I looked into this research and, and I found this study that was done in 1918 by, um, a French agricultural engineer named Maximilian Ringelman, who did this experiment where he had all of his students pull on a rope and he would measure the force that they had, they exerted on the rope. So he had them all do it together and measure the force and they had them do it all individually and measured that force and then added up the individual results and compared them to the group result. And what he found really shocked him, which was that the group the, he thought that, you know, the um, the group poll would be better. He thought that, that people, the, the, you know, the getting together and doing something together, there would be a, a higher average force. But what he found was the opposite, which is that people pulled on the rope harder by themselves than they did in the team context. And so this was a phenomenon that he discovered, which has been proven over and over again in other studies. It's now called social loafing. And it's a real phenomenon. I mean, there's a, a tendency to not work as hard. Um, when we're in a group than we do by ourselves. And so this is a real dangerous thing, I think, for any kind of team. And finally, uh, there was a study done at Fordham University, a couple of studies, one at Ohio State, but the one uh, at Fordham I thought was probably more relevant, which is they found they would put people in groups and, and they did this thing where they had them shout as loud as they could and they'd measure the decibel level collectively and then they'd have them shout individually and measure that. So but at Fordham, they did a little twist to the experiment, which is they brought they, they told everybody before they started the, sh- the group shout that there was one person on the team who was a high effort performer, who was famous for putting in an incredible amount of effort. And when they did that, they found that the group shout was just as loud as the individual shouts. So what they found was that the perception that someone is giving it 100% on the team can raise the entire team's collective performance. So that kind of explained to me what was going on with Barcelona and what was going on with a lot of these teams. You know, this doggedness, this relentlessness is contagious. And, you know, I asked Puyol about this. And he said it's absolutely true. He said, you know, if, if you're giving it 100%, you know, what somebody can't do um, is just let someone pass by them. You know, they see that and they feel like they have to raise their own game. And I think that's why that relentlessness played such a role in these teams sustaining that excellence, um, because they were pulling hard on the rope always. They never stopped. And uh, I think that's a that's a real valuable lesson and something that all teams can use. Yeah, for sure. And my first thought was like, OK, well, I'll go to practice tomorrow and I'll I'll tell my girls, hey, uh, Alexis is, you know, she's going 100 percent all the time. You know, so we all need to do that. Do you think something like that is too unnatural or do they, do they have to actually like feel it and perceive it for it to work? You know, it's hard for me to say. I think that the perception is is important. But I think as a coach, it's really, really good to point that out, you know, to point out that someone keeps playing hard. They run out, you know, they're, they're running out pop ups, you know, they're they're mm-hmm. they're playing. They're always giving it their all because I think you're looking for signs of people who you know, who get their ego gratification from the team's results. That's the thing. That's why it's so hard to find these people. That's why we make mistakes because, you know, it's hard to spot. It takes a lot of different um, techniques, I think, to find someone like that. But that's a great sign. It's not just that. I think we need to look for those people and to single out those people to for leadership who show through doggedness, through other things, that they're commitment to the team is complete and that the, the team's achievements and results are what they're um, measuring themselves against, not their own performance, not their own statistics, not how much attention they're getting, not whether they scored, even how many minutes they played. It's the team result. And um, that's the key. And, and I think that's a great sign that you've got somebody like that if they play hard, win or lose and never let up. So, so Tim Duncan was one of these people who you wrote about a lot, one of the elite leaders and 
he uh, he's the guy who chose to set picks and pass and defend, and uh, he he carried water as as you'd say. But do you see do you see that run ending now that he's retired with with the Spurs, or or do you think, you know, I, I guess you're not in their locker room, but do you see that that culture carrying on? with them yeah no it's interesting i actually had a an exchange with rc buford who's the general manager of the spurs about this exact subject um when he uh started reading the book and you know he's very concerned about this i mean they're very concerned because it's not just you know duncan i mean they really have a generational change coming on their team you know parker and ginobili are going to go popovich will go eventually They, they have an ownership transition so he's spending a lot of time thinking about this exact question which is how do we maintain that that leadership. And, you know, right now, last season, you know, I was wondering what was going on. They were playing very well. And I asked uh, Buford about this and he said, well, you know, it's not that big of a surprise because, you know, Tim Duncan still goes to practice. Mm. So Tim Duncan's not on the team, not being paid. He has no role officially with the team at all. He still comes to practice three times a week and pulls players aside and he'll say, He'll talk to them about matchups they're facing. He'll work with them on fundamental things they need to improve. He, you know, he's kind of still there doing that leadership and communication, and being that father figure. And you know, he he wasn't playing that well when he was in his final years. His minutes were limited. He, um, you know, his, his mobility was limited. You know, but it's that function that he plays in uniting the team and communicating in the way that he does with his teammates. So. That's there. I mean, I've seen some of these teams show the ability to carry that culture over for a while. You know, it usually doesn't last very long. But, you know, I think when you've had a great captaincy like that, usually the person coming behind, you know, understands it and, and is carrying on some of the team traditions. So I do think there's some – in some cases, teams have been able to sustain a little bit longer, but not for long. I mean, it's really hard unless you have a person who's the complete package and – um, you know, they're hard to find and they're hard to cultivate. And um, so I think the Spurs, you know, in the years to come will probably struggle, you know, unless they find someone in this mold again. And um, I don't think they found them yet, but, you know, I'm sure they're going to start looking. Can you describe uh, how Tim Duncan communicated with his teammates and give us a picture of what that looked like in the games? Well, this is one of the great things that I loved about this research because this I could this could not have upturned my own ideas more than it did. So the one thing about these these 16 captains, I could not believe none of them gave speeches, not one, not one of them was like a rah, rah, you know, soapbox speaker type of person. None of them did it. In fact, some of them purposely avoided it. They just didn't think it was important. They thought their teammates could motivate themselves. They didn't see it as a role. They, They felt awkward doing it. It wasn't their personality. And that shocked me. So what I found, though, was as I dug deeper into it, that it wasn't um, it wasn't uh, just that they didn't give speeches. They, they had a very specific way of communicating, which is different from what I thought it was. So they didn't give speeches, but they talked a lot inside the context of the team. And Tim Duncan, if you've ever seen him give an interview, you've seen he doesn't have charisma. Like he's not a he's not uh, doesn't have celebrity aura he's a really boring guy and most people will say um will describe him as such as sort of a boring person so but in the context of the team he's totally different he circulates very widely talks to everybody feels comfortable approaching everyone and he talks to them individually but very intensely you know for for long periods of time and if you watch him he uses his body language especially his eyes he will stare at his teammate when he's making a point very intently to, for an almost uncomfortable amount of time, three seconds, you know, directly staring at them. And he's only got like two or three facial expressions, you know, <laughs> one's happy, one's mad, one's, you know, encouraging, whatever. But, you know, immediately what he's what he's trying to tell you. And he explains things and he listens too. I mean, he talks and he listens. And so there's a weird, really strange pattern. The other athlete I found who was exceptional at this was Yogi Berra, who, you know, was amazing with pitchers, just an incredible track record of turning pitchers around because he was the same way. He circulated. He was friendly with everyone. He talked intently to them one-on-one. He tried to understand who they were and to work with them. And again, another person you would never imagine giving a big speech, but this kind of communication is incredibly effective. So I found this study, which was amazing that MIT did. And MIT looked at uh, teams and, and they looked at 
all the factors that went into team success. And these teams were in the workplace. They were workplace teams. And they found that communication was the number one thing that correlated to performance. It, it mattered more than talent. It mattered more than anything else. Uh, it was how they communicated. And what they found by doing a very cool study, um, they did kind of a map of the communication patterns of these players. And they found that in the middle of these great teams, there was one person who did exactly that, circulated widely, talking intently to everyone, listening and talking in equal measure. And very democratic with their time. And they call these people charismatic connectors. And that person's signature was inside every highly effective group that's, that, that they studied. And that's exactly what Tim Duncan was with the Spurs and what Yogi Berra was with the Yankees. And this is something coaches really need to start thinking about. It's, you know, when you're thinking about who your leader is going to be, it's not the loudest voice in the room. It's not the person who tries to set the tone in a group setting. It's, it's the person you have to watch and see who's comfortable talking to everyone, who talks to everybody, who, you know, has that communication style that's quiet. It's not showy. It's, it's, it's very individual and very um, focused. And if you start watching your team, not just on the field, but in other kinds of settings where they're just hanging out or they're, they're doing something together, um, you can kind of start to spot that person. And I think that is another clue. You know, like relentlessness, that you've got someone whose goals are really um, about the team because they're trying to solve problems in the moment and really work with people to improve them and, and help them individually. And that's uh, another thing I think it's worth looking for. That was part one of our conversation with Sam Walker on his book, The Captain Class. Join us next week as we continue to learn from Sam about what makes great leaders and great teams. This is part two of our conversation with Sam Walker about his book, The Captain Class the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And uh, another trait that these captains shared uh, that was pretty interesting to me was that they bent the rules, they were aggressive, and they didn't always show good sportsmanship. Um, is this something, I guess, as coaches, should we encourage this somehow in our players? Or like, how do we use this information? I think it depends on the level you're coaching at. And I mean, I think, I think this, is, this was definitely true in professional ranks. And in professional ranks, it's incredibly important, I think. But it's not that... It's not that we want these we want them to break the rules. I think it's that when they break the rules, we have to understand why they did it. And I think it's more important to understand the motivation because I think what happens is we look at athletes who do nasty things on the field, bad things, break the rules, and we look at athletes who do nasty things off the field, break the rules, get in trouble, get arrested. And I mean, I think we kind of lump those behaviors together and we just say this person's got an aggressive streak, they're a little out of control. Or we say, you know what, they get arrested, it's fine. They play really aggressively on the field. That's just who they are. But there's a real distinction. So this took a long time for me to figure out because like you said, these captains did things at times and, and always on the field, never off the field. They were off the field. They were very quiet. I mean, they were not troublemakers at all none of them ever got in trouble none of them ever got arrested they were they were kind of homebodies really they didn't like to even go out much and they were pretty boring off the field on the field they would really push the rules in spectacular ways sometimes and you know they usually got away with it i mean it was usually something they knew they could get away with and you know i, I always use the example of deflate gate because it's so recent but when i saw tom brady you know th these allegations against brady that's classic captain behavior <laughs> You know, he's trying to get it every advantage he can. He thought he would get away with it. And he did get away with it probably for years and years. And suddenly he didn't. But, you know, saying that's a character flaw, this is, the, this is what you have to be careful of. You know, you can't throw that out because you have to look at why he did it. Tom Brady is not someone who's aggressive off the field. He is not a party animal. He's not someone who really seeks attention. Uh, given his level of celebrity, he really resists it more than anyone. And, you know, but on the field, he will do anything. And his, because his motivation is to win. His motivation is the team and anything he can do to make the team more successful. So I think if you're coaching at that level, you need to, to understand that. But I think when it comes to kids, you know, obviously, you know, youth coaches have a really tough job because you're shaping, you're, you're teaching behavior and life lessons. You don't want to teach them to push the rules. But aggression is okay to a point. It's part of sports. And you have to understand that aggressive players in the context, on the field, during the game, you know, during the game, you're, you're operating under the rules of sports, you know, and the rules of sports are different from the rules of, of polite society. 
I mean, you know, think about a hockey game. You can be, you can punch someone in the face on the ice three feet away on the other side of the boards. You're going to be arrested for the same thing. So the rules are different, and you have to understand that you know, great leaders, great team leaders are probably going to push it, and sometimes they're going to go too far. But you know, you have to understand if their motivation is to help the team, make the team better. You have to add that into the way you respond, and the way you react. You know, you can't just censure them and say. You know, never do that again. It's better to sit down with them and say, this is why this hurt the team. This is why you don't want to do this. I understand your impulses. I understand your motivation. But, you know, this hurt the team or this could have hurt the team. So, you know, you don't want to, you know, stigmatize them for, for doing this kind of thing. You need to understand where it's coming from. And that someone who's team oriented, who's a great leader and a huge competitor is probably going to do this from time to time. Uh, and sometimes it's not going to work. And, and I think you just need to accept that and understand that um, you have to protect that player and have their back. You know, even if the parents and the administrators and the referees are on them, you need to understand that they're doing it for the right reasons. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. I mean, that's my, uh, my <laughs> motto. No, just kidding. So, um, so now, you know, with, I think something like narcissism is on the rise and social media is such a big deal in our, our world. People worried about uh, what people think about them. Do you think this type of person is a, a person of the past? Are we still going to be able to find these captains in, on our teams? No, I think they're out there. You know, I think the, what I've found and, and the one thing that was really surprising about this research was, you know, I've already said it's, it's not obvious qualities. It's not God-given abilities and talents and charisma that makes someone a great leader. And really the seven traits that, I, that I've outlined in the book are all about behavior. I mean, it's just, it's choices. It's the choices that you make and the things that you actually do inside the team context. And, you know, behavior can be modified. I mean, we can copy behavior. We can change our behavior. So I think everyone can get better. But there are a couple things that, that I think we need to, to think about, as coaches especially need to think about when they're looking at leaders. It's, you know, the first thing is that these leaders don't just show up. You know, they don't, they, they need to learn. This is something they need to develop. It's, it's something they need to do and they need to have some time to figure it out and to understand these principles before they're selected to be the captain. So that person's not going to walk in ready-made. You have to help them develop and they have to develop themselves. Um, but there are way more potential leaders than we realize because the, the problem is we're not looking at the right people. You know, I think there's a, there was a study that I found that was done on the Israeli military, which I thought was fascinating because they got access to all these records of all these soldiers who'd fought in, in the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. And they looked at leaders and, and decorated heroes and great people who performed very well in battle. And they did a kind of composite portrait of them. And one thing they found with the leaders was that they found that a lot of the leaders were very different. They had different personalities. They were, there was nothing, there was no pattern about who they were or their skills. I mean, they tended to be loyal and skillful, but you know, there, was no, there was no obvious pattern. But what they found was that they realized that there were a lot of people who had the potential to lead and far more than you would think. Um, but just because someone has the potential doesn't mean they're going to be a great leader. They need the motivation. And so a lot of people who have potential don't have the motivation to lead, the right motivation, which is the team goal, the, willing, the willingness to do anything, uh, that, that sense of, of, of wanting to win as a matter of ego, personal ego, um, wanting the team to win, I should say. But the final thing was development. So even if you have potential and the motivation, you have to develop your talent. And that's, that's the tricky part. That's where, you know, people really need to do better job identifying people who have the potential and the motivation. And this sounds crazy, and I, I keep saying this, and people look at me like I'm a space alien, but I would say if you're looking for the leader of your team, you've got to walk into the locker room, and you've got to look around, and you've got to think, if I just showed up, and, and I didn't know this team or anything about them, who's the last person that I would probably think was the leader of this team, you know, and, and it's probably not that person, you know, but I think you're probably closer to the truth if you start there than if you say who's the most obvious leader of the group, because I think that it's those quiet skills. You, know, you just have to observe and really watch someone and kind of understand what, why they do what they do. And, you know, they're not obvious. It's, it takes work. 
And, and, you know, if you find that person and it's someone you feel comfortable being a partner, being your on the field, um, uh, protege partner, then, uh, you've got the right person. And it's, it's, it's a completely different way of, of looking at leadership, I think. Yeah. I think John, you would have been captain a lot if, uh, <laughs> we were looking at the last choice. <laughs> uh, Not that talented. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, we have a, a few more questions that are kind of specific to us coaching our sure. teams and stuff. Um, you did say that you don't like having the players vote for captains. Is that the same at all levels, you know, high school and stuff because it becomes a popularity contest. Um, like, I guess, what is your advice there? Just the coach decides. It's so hard with, with high school because I know that so much of, you know, a lot of these athletes want to play collegiate and, you know, that being a captain is really important to them on a lot of levels. You've got the parents and I mean, that's a real tough thing. And, it, you know, I think the, the advice I would give is I don't think you're going to be able to hit the bullseye every time. I think you, I think what you need to do is you need to come in and you need to find your freshmen, your sophomores, and you need to start watching them. And you need to try to find someone like this. And I think, you know, at some point you need to try to, maybe you break precedent. Maybe your captain's always a senior. Maybe you say, you know what, we're going to do a junior or we're even going to do a sophomore. Just, you got to say, I'm going to try this once and I'm going to try to pick one of these people. Because the thing is, if you hit that right, then, you know, what's going to happen is all the kids coming up behind them, you're probably going to have to take the All-American and make them the captains because, you know, politically you have to do it or because it's, it would seem cruel not to. But if that person has a chance to, to compete under a captain who's got these abilities and this way of behaving, then maybe by osmosis their behavior will be better. And I think even if you give it to a superstar talent, you, know, you need to sit down with them, talk about these seven traits, talk about what the great captains have done. You know, talk, I mean, buy them my book, for God's sake. You know, just like start working on them because I think anyone can get better. But I, I think it's worth trying to hit the jackpot once. And you may take a lot of flack for it. It may be tough. But if you do, you may get this great phenomenon where, you know, you just their behavior begets the same behavior in other people. And you start to get a culture going that's sustainable even as people leave. Yeah, because I feel like we expect leadership a lot, but we don't really spend practice time teaching it uh, to some of those players. So we'll definitely send them your book. <laughs> Good. <laughs> For sure. So then what about in uh, recruiting? I, you know, I coach at a university and we go to we go watch these sophomores and juniors play in high school and we get very little time around them. Do you think there's things we can see like on the field or things we should be looking for, you know, outside of talent? Yeah, I think that relentlessness is the first thing. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then, you know, it, it's hard to tell if they're putting on a show, especially if they know that college coaches are, you know, watching them. But I think you can kind of see that. I think communication is really important. I think watching the way they interact with their teammates, if they circulate, I think that's really good. Um, but I think you can find a lot from talking to them too. I mean, one of the things I haven't really talked about is emotional control. And that's such a huge part of leadership. It's not saying the thing that you shouldn't say. It's, it's not, you know, reacting or emoting, you know, in any way that might hurt the team or change its trajectory. And I think, you know, you can kind of tell when you talk to some of these kids, especially if they've been through something kind of difficult in their lives and they've bounced back from it. I mean, that's a good sign. Um, but it's sort of emotional maturity, you know, and also, you know, someone who is just not interested in, uh, or sort of embarrassed or kind of feels awkward being singled out. I and mean, one of the things I, I tell coaches that they got limited time with, uh, with an athlete is to say, you know, give them a test, like look at, you know, if their team did really well, you know, read them their stats and say, wow, you know, like you, you really drove that team to greatness. You know, you really, you, you know, you must just really put everyone on your back, you know, and you need it to, you know, if they don't squirm a little bit and if they don't get kind of awkward and say, no, it was really a team effort. I mean, you're probably not barking up the right tree in terms of leadership. They can still be a great player you want, but if you're thinking about them in a leadership context, you know, these leaders to me, I mean, I live this because I'm trying to do interviews with 16 people who do not want individual credit. <laughs> so, you know, I had to, I had to beg and plead and show up at their door, you know, in some cases to get these interviews, but yeah, no, that's, that's another thing that I think you can see in limited time. Again, it's hard, you know, it's, it's tough. But the other thing I would say is, you know, you're looking at two kids, you know, a lot of times I think you're looking at two kids, 
you know, they're, they're physically pretty similar. The numbers are similar. Their intangibles, you know, seem relatively similar. You know, I think you should, instead of making the, the decision based on who's one half step quicker, you know, make the decision based on who you think has leadership capabilities. Because, again, finding someone like this, it's the pot of gold. It really is the pot of gold. And even if they're not a star, you know, they're going to help you create a culture that will make the team better. And they're worth their weight in gold. And, and I think, you know, sometimes we pass them over for physical um, or talent reasons. And I would say, don't. You know, try to try to try to get them on board and see if you've got the right thing. So if I if I recruit for this, say I'm you know that's my number one priority, and end up with uh, 16 of these, is that too many people carrying water? Is, is you know do you think that's a problem? Well, that's that's interesting. So no, I mean I think if if you've got the right culture, it's not. You know, and and one thing I found, and a lot of um, teams are talking now about leadership groups, especially in youth coaching. I think it's this idea that you know you want to try to diffuse it because it's easier than singling out one person and you want to have several leaders on the team and spread the responsibility out. Um, I don't think, I think you need a captain. I think you need to find one. But what I've found is if you have the right captain and it's not someone, it's someone that everyone instantly recognizes the collective captain as an, as a team oriented person who's not personally oriented. Then what I found is it's actually really great when you have other potential leaders there. And the, the great example is Brazil. And, and this completely changed the way I look at Brazil. So, you know, I looked at this great team from 58 to 62, you know, that had Pelé, you know, the greatest player in the history of soccer. And I assumed he was the reason they were so great. But, you know, he was very young when they won their first World Cup. And he wasn't even he was injured for the final of the other one. And, you know, I asked Pelé about this and he said, you know, I was never the captain. I didn't want to be the captain. So what I found in Brazil was amazing. The captain was always a defender, a central defender. This guy, Hilderado Bellini, was the main captain in that time. And he never scored a goal. I mean, you know, he was completely in the shadows, never uh, was a star and worked tirelessly for the team. But that, those teams not only had Bellini, they had this guy, Moro, who was also a great captain. They had Zito, who was the captain of Santos, this great club team. It was, and then Carlos Alberto was the captain in 1970, you know, when they won the World Cup again. They never had the same captain twice. The reason Brazil was so great is because they understood this difference. They let the superstar be the superstar and didn't burden them with leadership. The leader was always someone in the background. And everyone understood this. Brazil is a diverse country hard place to unify a team because people are from such different backgrounds that they all understood that the strength of the team was its leadership. And no one thinks that's the case. Someone thinks Brazil's just, they grow great players on trees. No, they grow great captains on trees. That's the difference. And that's why they were so good. And so, yeah, you know, those captains all coexisted and helped each other and they understood the importance of that role. So it's possible. And I think if you have, you know, the right person in charge, they're not going to create envy. They're not going to create suspicion. They're not going to create division inside the team that way. Um, and, and I think all, you'll have many leaders. Can you talk about the difference between like, yeah, that creating that division or like maybe personal conflicts and then the task conflicts that you talk about and why we shouldn't necess necessarily get rid of players who are making waves? Yeah, that's, that's another good lesson, I think, for coaches. So, you know, there's always this tendency to look at someone who creates conflict or pushes back or challenges your authority or doesn't like the game plan or rebels in some way. Um, there's an immediate reaction that this person is not a team person. This person is selfish. This person's thinking of not thinking of the collective and is creating problems. And, it, you know, all the way up the chain of professional sports, these people get sent out, they get traded, they get moved. And, you know, the difference is there's actually two kinds of conflict. And I, I think this is one of the things about the book that I've used in my own management. And, and it's helped me a lot is that there's two kinds of conflict. There's personal conflict, which is, you know, when you just don't like somebody, when you're what you do is motivated by anger, hate, like dislike. If it's if it's directed at someone in, in an attempt to hurt them. And that is toxic. That is always toxic. And, and that should immediately, that is something you need to stop. But there's a kind of conflict called task conflict. And inside teams, they, studies have found that teams that are performance-based, that compete together in real time, especially under pressure, on those teams, task conflict is essential because they don't have a lot of time to solve problems. So you have to have an open culture where someone can 
you know, question what you're doing in the moment so that you can adjust and get better. And those kinds of teams thrive on task conflict. And task conflict, again, it's what's the motivation? If someone's creating problems inside your team, if they're doing it because they, they think the team is on the wrong track and they're trying to get the whole team to improve so that it can win, that's good. And you have to allow that to happen and you have to tolerate it and you can't see it as a challenge to your authority. But if it's personal, if it's you know someone feeling like they're playing hard and their teammates aren't or you know they don't like a certain person on the team or they think the star is selfish, or they, that's bad. And you can tell the difference if you really look. And that's something to keep in mind because you know I think a lot of players like this get kicked off these teams and thrown out because they're just hard to deal with and hard to manage. But they don't realize that that they're again the motivation is in the exact right place. And even if it doesn't work, you, you can't fault them for for trying. And Sam, I've I've fallen for I'm one of those coaches that has in the past gone away from having captains sometimes on teams thinking everyone should be a leader and you know it shouldn't be one person that talks to me it should be like you know any player should be able to communicate and that kind of stuff um and you mentioned this is like a recent trend that captains are fading falling out of fashion can you talk about the dangers of this and uh, why it actually hurts the team well the the thing is this whole trend and i mean you see it in professional sports too where i think economics has a lot to do with it um, but I think, you know, a lot of coaches at lower levels are also doing this too. And it's really funny. I think a lot of it comes from Silicon Valley and this startup culture and this idea of having flat hierarchies where, you know, the, the CEOs and the founders talk to the star talent directly. and There's less layers of management between them. But, you know, these captains were classic middle managers. They were the intermediaries between the coaches, the, the management and the players and they were people who were inter- – I mean, as intermediaries, I mean, they would listen to what the players wanted and, and, and understand where they were. They would listen to the coach, what the coach wanted them to do. And on the field, they had the autonomy to say, okay, this is what the team wants. This is what the coach wants. This is what our opponents are doing. This is what we're – this is the right call. And they were able to sort of shift tactics and – play in a way that use the best of both sides. And that's what middle managers do. I think middle managers have really been stigmatized in business because everyone thinks, oh, it's all this bureaucracy. We need to be lean, agile, and be able to move quickly. So here's the problem with that. You know, we're all modeling ourselves after these companies that are just on this upward growth trajectory, you know, where they're thriving and money's pouring in and sales are going up and every sky's the limit. But where these managers came in, these middle managers, these captain figures come in, is when things start to go bad. And in all the examples I use in the book, I try to show a moment where this team could have gone off the rails, where the whole thing could have ended. And that's when you see these characteristics. Look, they don't, these leaders are leading all the time, but they don't do their most effective work most of the time. If you're winning and winning and winning – they don't have to lead. They don't have to lead as actively and obviously. It's when things start to go bad is when always, in every case, they'll use one of these traits, one of these behaviors, one of these tools in their toolkit to turn things around. And it's the same with companies. You know, when you start to falter, it's those people in the middle who understand the operations, they understand the management, they understand the goal, and they are motivated by the by the success of the collective group those are the people who hold you together the stars will bail the managers will bail and they'll get fired you know everything else is temporary in an organization you know a lot of people will quit on you if things start to go south those are the people who won't and they will use their leadership ability and their influence in those moments so that's why you you need people like this to sustain culture you can be good without one for a short time, but as soon as things get bad, you're going to miss that person there. And again, a leadership group's not going to cut it because who's the person who's going to take it upon themselves? You know, there's a better chance they're all going to sort of look at each other and shrug and say, it's just not our year, man. And that's the end of it. And that's another kind of contagion. It's a toxic one. So I think you have to identify that person who will never, never, never stop and never quit and never give up. And that's the person who will carry you through in the tough times. Yeah. I like that a lot. So if we, let's say we pick the wrong captain, um, like for instance, if the Spurs had picked a different captain, um, wouldn't they have still have had a great run or like, wouldn't Tim Duncan still have been influential? And if, if Popovich had like picked a different person or does having that role assigned to you, like make that difference? 
It doesn't, the, the designation itself doesn't matter, you know, in that, I mean, I think it does matter because it's much easier if you designate that person. But, you know, Yogi Berra, the Yankees never had a captain during his tenure, so he wasn't the official captain. He was the leader of that team by all accounts, but you don't have to have the designation. And this Australian um, field hockey team that I talked about, which I didn't know anything about, had the same thing. It had a coach who wanted, you know, to have a leadership group. The thing is, it was still the, the captain of that team who fulfilled those functions. She continued to work hard. She continued to work with the coach. She continued to do all the things that leaders do, which is a huge testament to her because she basically had her captaincy taken away for no reason. But, you know, that's – so it's possible, yeah. I mean, you know, you don't have to designate as long as that person is still fulfilling the role and and as long as they're talking to you and, and as long as you have that partnership. I think that would be really hard to do, though, if your primary point of contact is that other person and someone else is the designated captain. I think you're going to create – problems and you know this australian team saw the same thing as soon as they took away her captaincy they really struggled for a while and it's a testament to her that she was willing to deal with the pain and humiliation of that and continue to lead the team forward and and fix things but it's tough it's tricky if you don't actually name the person but again if captains had never been invented i would be saying find someone like this to be your surrogate on the field they don't have to be a captain you know what I mean? It's like they just need to do this and they need to behave this way and they need to have the trust and confidence of the coach. So if I'm a, I'm a coach and I, I bought in, like I'm going to pick the right captain. I've really thought about this. I've looked for maybe the least likely person to pick. Now, what, it, what are my next steps in working with this athlete? Should I spend more time with them? What sort of things should I be doing? I think, there's, I think the important thing is to um, figure out a way to argue. You know, I think there's a... Um, and, and, a, and a way to listen and a way to take some of their suggestions and to make them feel, to give them, to empower them. It's hard for a coach, especially lower levels where, you know, you know so much more about than the players do tactically. But I think you have to set your ego aside. There's a certain amount of humility that coaches have to have. And, and you really have to try to figure out how to work with that person in a way that it's a partnership. And, you know, more than it feels like... Um, uh, you don't want someone who's just yes sir, no sir. I mean, you really want, and if they're not giving it to you, then solicit their input. Ask them about the game plan. A little vulnerability, a little uncertainty, a little bit of, um, you know, willingness to listen and try new things. You know, I, I think those pairs, those, those pairs of coaches and captains, Belichick and Brady, great example, Popovich and Duncan, um, you know, Alex Ferguson and Roy Keane had this going for a while. You know, throughout history, these great um, coaches have had their best runs when they had that kind of thing. And, you know, that's that's hard to do. But, you know, I, I think that you need to talk to them about leadership. I mean, I think, look, I'm trying to break this in the open with this book and just say these this is the behavior, you know. And I think that, that if people study this and understand that that's the behavior they want to emulate, they're going to get better. They're going to be better leaders. And, you know, if you're able to set aside your um, – general way of operating as a coach and to admit you know to, to give up a little control to that person a little bit not all of it but some of it uh, i think the results will be pleasing i mean i think i think you'll see a real difference throughout the team at all levels great advice this has been so amazing and i, I just have one one final question maybe the most important one you know, my co-host here billy allen he's finishing up is it a sci-fi novel or a fantasy uh, novol what is john, it billy john Cyborg? don't do this so he's finishing it up. And do you have any advice for an aspiring young young writer? I guess he's kind of middle aged writer, like Billy over there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's so funny with writing. It's like it, I, the only thing that I say to people is, writing is rewriting. There's no such thing as writing. It's you know what you put on the page when you sit down, and it shouldn't be anything close to what you actually wind up finishing with i mean it's really about going back and rewriting and rewriting and you know walking around the block getting some distance from it coming back seeing the things that don't line up the clunky transitions the things that are that that people don't understand and you got to show it to people and have you need an editor everyone needs editing everyone needs help it's it's really a collaborative thing and um, you have to be ruthless you have to be willing to rip up everything and start over and you know i'm very slow I'm a slow writer. I'm not fast uh, at all. But I mean, I think the reason is I'm, I, I'm my own worst 
critic, you know, and I think you really need to be really hard on your own material because no one's going to be as hard on your material as you can be. So I think that's the only advice I have. It's just, it's just hours and hours of labor. You know, it's not, it's not glamorous. You know, yeah. well, you won't let me read it. Well, John, John, you'll be my next, uh, next draft Good. editor. So I can't All wait. Right. All right. Well, I can see why you, you put in so much time and I mean, it, it's clear uh, the work you put in because the book is, is amazing and uh, it really made me reconsider the way I approach leadership with my teams and how I think about captains and uh, I, I hope people picked up on all the great stuff that you shared with us and go out and read the book and how, how can people find you and um, get the book? Uh, well, I have a, uh, I have a website which is bysamwalker.com which I'm um, need to be more diligent in updating um, but I'm on Twitter at Sam Walker's and um, LinkedIn and Facebook, all those places. And the book is for sale, you know, everywhere, online, bookstores. It's, um, it's relatively easy to find. So, um, But anyway, thanks for that. Guys. Yeah, no, go get it today. It's a great book. Thank yeah. you for spending so much time with us. That was awesome. Yeah, no, it's great. Great questions, guys. I really appreciate <laughs> it. It was okay. We don't know what we're doing, so I'm <laughs> thanks. Yeah, right. thanks for carrying us. Like a true Captain John Squirmish right now. <laughs> there, there. Uh, yeah. right there. <laughs> I'm learning. Thanks a lot, Sam. This was great. All right, yeah. guys.